Good evening. Welcome to Spirit Rock. Welcome to Monday night. Nice to see you all. New faces, familiar faces. My name is Mark Coleman. Wow, that's loud. Hello. Thanks. Um, how's that sound? Sounds very loud from here. Huh? Loud. Yeah. If we can get a bit lower. Yes. How's that? Still sounds loud, but it's okay. Yeah. Not loud. Okay. It's all relative. I don't know why it's so loud up here. Huh? Anyhow. So is anybody new to Spirit Rock tonight? Great. Welcome. Welcome. So Spirit Rock is a meditation center in the Insight Meditation Buddhist tradition. And we've just upgraded our quarters from... We had a trailer park over there. And... um, it was pretty good. It was not bad for a trailer park. Anyhow, we've upgraded. I haven't, still haven't gotten used to being in the cathedral, but it's lovely. I was here yesterday teaching, and there was three different day-long retreats going on at the same time, which was really interesting to see how, how much we can make use of this space and how many different teachings can be going on at the same time. We had bells and gongs and clackers for all the different programs and schedules, and that was fun. So, um, so we'll sit for a little while, and then uh, we'll take a break. And um, hopefully, you'll say hello to people and not to eat too many large cookies. And uh, and then we'll uh, give a talk on a. Some themes that are that are bubbling for me, and maybe read some of the questions or themes that you that you wrote out as you some of you entered. Hopefully, have some themes. So I wanted to read this piece from Thomas Merton, great Christian mystic and. So, Buddhist student, he said, A door opens in the center of our being and we seem to fall through it into immense depths which, although they are infinite, are all accessible to us. All eternity seems to have become ours in this one placid and breathless contact. So at times in meditation, a door opens in the center of our being and we seem to fall through it into immense depths through which although they are infinite, are all accessible to us. All eternity seems to have become ours in this one placid and breathless contact. So I'm going to guide us a little in simple mindfulness practice. And to know, even though the practice is very simple and very ordinary and very human, when we're present and open and allowing of this moment we can touch profound silence and depth as he's pointing to. 
So let's sit together, sitting upright. Turning off your cell phone, turning off your cell phone mind, turning off that ceaseless, restless looking for experience and stimulation and something to fill the gap, fill the void inside. And come to rest quietly in our own hearth, in our own body, in this very moment. to make the intention to really be present, to be intentional about where you place your attention. To not let the mind just pull you here and there, but to actually be really clear, really focused, this moment, this moment, where is my attention? We can bring our attention to our bodies, to sitting, getting the contact of the body with the earth. We can let the attention settle and attend to the breath, to the sensations of breathing. to become one with the breath, to become attuned, as it were, to melt into, and receive each in-breath, each out-breath. Letting the attention settle ever more deeply into this moment of sitting, being, breathed.
and to notice what's revealed in that process, to notice what's revealed outside of that process. What else is here? What else is being known? Perhaps we're aware of space inside and outside. Perhaps we're aware of the sounds that appear and disappear in the space of awareness. And we include and welcome the totality of our experience. Whatever feeling, whatever emotion comes and washes through us. Whatever mental state or mood. Can we remain in clear awareness? Simply present to the unfolding of our experience. Noticing when we wake up from a dream, from a trance, from a thought train, that moment of waking up is a moment of returning to mindful awareness. We simply resume that knowing of what's here right now. It's being known in awareness. And we can simply remain with the unfolding of experience. Or we can also attend more closely to the breath as a way of anchoring and tethering attention in a more steady way. Either way, bringing a curious, welcoming attitude. Noticing how you meet each experience.
being intentional about where you place your attention. Moment to moment noticing what's happening.
Where is your attention now? What is your relationship to this experience in this moment?
Mindfulness meditation is sitting in the fullness of our humanity. Clear awareness, warm-heartedness, and inquisitive spirit. So as we end the meditation, or as we near the end of the meditation, I invite you, if you feel inclined, to open your eyes slowly. And to include that dimension of our experience, the seeing world, the moving world, the people world, the other people world. Important to soften the boundary between meditation and non-meditation, since they're not really any different. It's just a form or a conventional agreement about something. And seeing what else is present as we open our eyes and look around and move and stretch. This is also part of our human, being human meditation. Just notice if the quality of your attention differs when we, as it were, shift out of formal meditation. Aside from feeling relieved, you can move and relieve your aching knees and back. What else changes? You know, we talk about you know living this practice and living with wakefulness in our life, moment to moment. And maybe a lot of the time we're just paying lip service to that nice idea. (laughs) We do our practice, whatever our practice is in the morning, our yoga, our pranayama, our meditation, or something. And then, right, okay, done with that. Now back to email. Back to... Facebook, back to rushing around like a crazy person until the next morning. (laughs) And then we remember, oh right, yeah, being present, what a concept. So what a gift to sit together to practice, to be quiet. As, as hard as it is, right? It's not easy to sit still with a busy mind and you know, fidgety body and restless heart and you know, whatever else is going on, craving for cookies or 
cup of tea or conversation or something in social contact. Anything but stillness, anything but being with myself, anything but having to face my experience. It's very courageous to sit here in our aloneness, in our existential predicament between birth and death. And also very delightful at times, very delicious. As as, uh, Merton was talking about, we fall into immense depths at times, quiet, stillness, openness, presence, love, vastness, boundlessness, freedom. And then the times we're just grappling with our wandering mind and our achy body and our boredom and restlessness and fidgetiness. Being with the whole catastrophe, that's practice. And at some point when we do this practice enough, we don't care what happens. It doesn't matter what happens in the sitting. It doesn't matter one iota what happens on one level. We just show up, we do our work, we're present, and we let the Dharma, we let life take care of the rest. And over time that builds a certain steadiness, a certain resilience. It, it begins to integrate into our being. It becomes to it forms part of our presence, part of our wakefulness in the world. It becomes part of the fabric of who we are. So it's not even a thing that we do. We're just sitting quietly, being still, being ourselves, being human, being awake, as awake as we can. It's a beautiful thing. So we'll take. Oh, I'm actually Mark's gonna say say some and give some announcements, and um, and then we'll take a break and invite you to, if you feel like it, saying hello to the people next to you after we've had our announcements and just making people around you feel welcome, and then we'll come back for a talk and maybe a discussion. All right. um, next Monday night, our teacher will be Philip Moffat. Philip Moffat next Monday night. Mark will be back on Monday, October 31st. I think that's Halloween. Will you be wearing a mask or anything? <laughs> uh, out in the foyer, uh, there's a flyer that has all of Mark's upcoming events at Spirit Rock. Uh, I'll read off the first two, but October 11th through the 16th, that Mark will be uh, teaching a residential retreat, Natural Radiance, the Freedom of Awareness. Saturday, October 22nd, Freedom from the Inner Critic. Uh, that's a day long here. 9.30 to 4.30, and are you having, is it, you're having a book at that time, or no? Sorry. Well, so, my, so I have a book coming out called Make Peace With Your Mind, How Mindfulness and Compassion Helps Free You From the Inner Critic. It just so happens I have a day-long schedule. They weren't, that's sort of more coincidental on, on October 22nd. I don't know whether we'll have the physical book then. I'm hope, My prom- publisher is promising that we will. But if not, then I'm also back here on November 21st, which will be more of a public launch for the book. So um, if you happen to know someone who has a critic, because I know nobody else here does, but just in case you, you know, then they might find that interesting. So it would be nice to see you. And then, Mark, I'll do a residential retreat in December and a day long in January, but I'll let you just, I'll just refer you to the flyer. They're out. Uh, as you exit the door in the foyer, there's a table to the right that's got book in, uh, email sign up list for Mark, as well as book 
uh, his books and also this flyer. There's also these flyers sitting over by the video monitor in the foyer. And let me see if there's anything else I have. I think that's pretty much it. Mark's books and audio CDs are available for sale in our bookstore tonight. The bookstore will stay open for about 10 or 15 minutes after we end. Um, Of course, there's tea in the foyer and cookies available, and the cookies benefit our family program. So we'll take about a 15-minute break.
So I was flicking through the, some old New York Times um, magazines, and I mostly only have time to read the cartoons, so I thought I'd share you a few, because um, it's the best part about the New Yorker. Um, so there's a bunch of cavemen sitting around the campfire, eating some turkey leg or something. So I'm reading this because I, I had some health stuff this summer, and I had to go on this, I'm still on this sort of diet that's very, very simple. And um, anyhow, a bunch of cavemen sitting around the fire eating. And one guy says, I don't know about you guys, but I've had it up to here with this paleo diet. <laughs> As have I. Um, and then this is another uh, picture of a, looks like a homeless person. And with a sign... And it's the sign says, "Followed my bliss." <laughs> Read a lot into that one. So I was teaching yesterday, as I said, and um, somebody raised this question about um, that they'd mostly been studying this tradition, and then recently they'd been reading a lot of non-dual teachers and non-dual texts, and um, they felt very confused, and what do I? Th- and he asked what I think I should. He asked me what I think he should do, and I said, "Stop reading." I <laughs> 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 will cut through that paradox. <laughs> um, but seriously, um, you know, as you know, we live in this time where we have unprecedented access to just this huge array of spiritual teachings you know, from every tradition and from every teacher in every tradition and even within the same tradition but often with, other tra- with different traditions there's different views, there's different ideas particularly if you're at the beginning of the path versus the end of the path whether you're speaking from the beginning of the path or the end of the path and so it made me reflect on the role of a teacher, partly the, the role of a of a, a spiritual teacher, a Dharma teacher, is to help contextualize and to frame and to hold that bigger picture for those seeming dualities and polarities and dichotomies that are present within spiritual teachings, even within the same spiritual tradition. Certainly within the Buddhist tradition, there are many uh, seemingly opposing views and ideas about practice and the path and development and, and uh, enlightenment and things. And certainly when you have two, diff- two different traditions, um, uh, that, that paradox or, or clash can seem even greater. Yeah? And even though Buddhism, and in this case Advaita, which is the uh, you know s- somewhat similar stream, you know I think of you know I think again you know as as we deepen and, and, and mature in our understanding of these traditions and practices and paths, we see that they're all part of the same river. They're not necessarily the same river, but if we you know when we look deeply, they're all orienting towards the ocean in some way or other. Right? Some may be meandering, some may be in eddies, some may go substrata and you don't even see them. Some evaporate maybe and get to the ocean through rain, but they're all heading in a certain direction. 
So in that spirit, I wanted to um, just share some words. Um, I had, I've been planning for a long time to give a talk uh, around um, a somewhat fresher perspective on the Four Noble Truths, um, but that, uh, and I thought I was going to do that tonight, but this came through, so I wanted to just share some of these words. And so I'm going to read from uh, teachings from different teachers in different traditions, mostly in the Buddhist tradition, and the traditions that I've been most inspired by, and to to feel into... The purpose of the talk isn't to feel a commonality of the voice, but we can hear the commonality of the voice in all these different teachers and different traditions. And the theme, really, that I want to speak on, which is not a theme that I choose to speak on because I don't like the word, I don't like the phrase, letting go. But the theme is around letting go. But I prefer the word release. I prefer the word relinquishment. Partly because I just love how that word feels in the mouth. Relinquishment. It's like music. Relinquishment. Right? It's rich. You know. we, could, we could also frame it in terms of renunciation, but that doesn't sound quite as nice in the mouth, does it? It doesn't feel quite the same in the body. It's like, ooh, that feels sparse and empty and cold. Relinquishment has this deliciousness to it. Perhaps. <clears throat> so we can speak to different facets of relinquishing because so much of what Buddhist practice is about is relinquishing various things, whether it's views or ideas or attachments or misconceptions or reactive patterns or unwholesome tendencies or delusion or whatever. So one of the first things, not one of the first things, but one important thing to, um, to practice, and I'm not sure if we practice relinquishing this, but one of the things that we, um, that's important to hold as a living experience is the relinquishment of knowing, the relinquishment of the hubris of knowing of the hubris of thinking we know anything about anything, the, oh, the hubris of thinking we know anything about life, right? and this mysterious, fathomless, beautiful universe that we're in. Right? We know so little, and yet what there is to know is so much, but we, we, we ossify and rigidify around the small things that we do know. And we hold on to them for dear life because we live in such a big world where we know so little. So this is um, actually this is from the, really, the Western psychological tradition, which is also a tradition I've been very influenced by. This is from Adi Lang. And it's about knowing and not knowing. And he says, There is something I don't know that I am supposed to know. I don't know what it is I don't know and yet I'm supposed to know and feel I look stupid if I seem to both not know it and not know what it is I don't know. Therefore, I pretend to know it. This is nerve-wracking. Since I don't know what I must pretend to know, therefore, I pretend to know everything. (laughs) 
I feel that you know what I'm supposed to know, but you can't tell me what it is because you don't know that I don't know what it is. (laughs) You may know what I don't know, but not that I don't know it, and I can't tell you. So you will have to tell me everything. How many times do we pretend that we know? Right? We go in for a job interview, you know, we're giving a presentation at work, and we're saying something to our kids. <laughs> and we're pretending to know. Or we're bolstering up what we think we know with ideas or arguments or something. And of course we know, we may know plenty of things, hopefully, as you know, we live and grow and practice. We, you know, we do hopefully learn something, mostly that we don't know very much is what we mostly learn. And that what we know is all relative and in five years it's like, oh, I thought I knew this, but actually I didn't know anything then. Now I have a little sense of it. Right? You had that experience? We think we know something like the breath and then 10 years later we're like, I had no idea what the breath was. Or, you know, you know, I've got this meditation stuff licked. You know, I know what meditation is. I know what mindfulness is. Right? As we deepen and inquire and explore, we realize, oh, there's so much subtlety, so much nuance, so much depth, so much richness. Or something like awareness. Right? Some of the more mysterious things of experience. Right? What is awareness? Can we know awareness? How do we know awareness? How do we know that we're aware? How does that which knows, knows that it knows? (laughs) How do we know ourselves? How can we think we know someone else when we realize how difficult it is to know ourselves? We're so changeable and mutable and complex and layered. And something may arise out of our psyche and consciousness or our body that was hidden for 35 years. And we thought we knew everything there was to know about ourselves. And then suddenly out of the blue, some, something comes, something beautiful, something difficult, some memory, some aha. So how can we possibly claim to know someone else? If knowing this that we've lived with all our lives is so hard. And how do we know what's true? This practice of mindfulness is to foster awareness and clarity about what's here, about what's real, about what's true. What is true in our experience? What is true in our experience that doesn't change? Therefore, I pretend to know something about something. You know, or we grab onto our domain of knowledge in, in a, like this life raft of security in this vastness of the realm of the unknown. It's actually very delicious to also open to the, the reality of not knowing and what that 
lends itself to. If we think we know something, we've gone a little dead because we've stopped looking, we've stopped exploring, we've stopped being curious. We think we know something, there's nothing left to know, so why have interest? Why be curious? You know, something very beautiful about meditation practice, about awareness, you sit down, you have no idea what's going to happen. You might have all these great plans and intentions, I'm going to do this practice and this technique, I'm going to do this and then... then. And you sit down, you fall asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Or something, you know. Something happens. What happens is way more interesting than what we think we know is going to happen. That's the past. We know things based on the past. And this practice is about living in the present. If we think we know, our knowing comes from past experience. How can we know that which is not yet formed? So I really appreciate deeply this practice that has really unhooked for me this idea of knowing. So I often feel in a suspended state of not knowing. A person, an experience, a moment, a tree, a breath, a cloud, life, death. And so it's, and it provides this quizzical um, orientation, this interest, and, and energy follows interest. If there's no interest, energy, energy subsides. There's a beautiful little stanza from this old Zen teacher called Paul Reps, and I, I won't be able to repeat, repeat it exactly, but he says, in this life... No sames, no two pebbles, no two blades of grass, no two flowers or rocks. Those who disobey this law get bored. No two things are the same. So when we live in this beautiful part of the world and we live surrounded by the natural world that is constantly inviting us to bring this attitude of not knowing. What is the natural world? What is a bird song? What is a cloud? What is the tree that stands in your yard that you've looked at for 17 years and you still don't know what it is because it keeps revealing itself and changing as you change? So when we, we can reside in this quality of not knowing, then there's openness to receive what is here, to be touched. You know, when when Thomas Merton talks about this quality, all eternity seems to have become ours, ours in this one placid and breathless contact. In this state of not knowing, there's a breathless contact to experience. There's an aliveness 
So I invite you as you go about your day to invite yourself into remembering this quality of not knowing. As you go home tonight to see your spouse or your children or your dogs or your goldfish or whatever it is to enter into that sense of mm, I don't, who is this person that I've lived with for 12 years, 25 years that I think I know and I've stopped seeing stopped hearing stopped being alive for So relinquishing the knowing mind at times. You know, I come here and I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes that's not a good thing. <laughs> and then something else, something, I come and something happens. Way different than whatever I would have realized. And life's like that the whole time. We think, oh, I'm going to go see my friends and I've been hanging out for years. And who knows what's going to happen? Maybe they tell you, as my dear friends did at dinner the other week, that they've got colon cancer. That was not part of my knowing reality. Or they're about to have, they're, they're, they're pregnant. Or whatever. So relinquishing, not knowing. So, second relinquishment. The relinquishing wanting to be somewhere else. The relinquishing wanting to be somewhere other than here. Relinquishing wanting to be, to have this experience be different than it is to be better than it is. Anybody know that mindset? (laughs) How often are we wanting to be somewhere other than we are? Which is a very imprisoning mind state. A common also, a human, very normal, very ordinary and natural. And that very state is imprisoning in that it robs us of the possibility of finding some contentment or ease or satisfaction where we actually are. So this is a reading from Lao Tzu, from the Taoist tradition. Around similar time, the Buddha in that great axial age of dawning of awakened consciousness, you could say, around the world. Always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will all turn out. Well, this is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better, and it has already turned out. There is no need to run outside for better seeing, nor to peer from a window. Rather, 
abide at the center of your being for the more you leave it, the less you learn. No need to peer from a window or look outside. Search your heart and see that the way to do is to be. This is a paradoxical teaching. The Tao is full of paradox. It confounds the mind. What do you mean it's already turned out? I'm waiting for it to turn out. And it hasn't turned out yet. It's not how I want it. And I want it to be better than this is. And so, God help us if this is it. (laughs) Because it's not what I wanted. It's not what I expected. It's not what I was told it was going to be like. So, I was reminded of a story when I was studying with a teacher in India called Punjaji, who was this very delightful, brilliant, very awake uh, teacher, sage. And, <clears throat> and one of his sort of mantras, well, one of the mantras that happened in Lucknow, which was where he was uh, hanging out in this you know, pretty industrial, polluted North Indian city, he would... Um, he would say, you know, so people would come to him, they would have these great awakenings, and then they'd go home, and then they'd come back, and they would say, I had it and I lost it. Because he, he would say, why'd you come back? Go away, I don't want you people around. And they'd say, well, I had something and I lost it. He said, what was there to lose? I didn't give you anything in the first place, so what is the problem here? And, and one of his phrases was he would say, this is it. What are you waiting for? Where do you think it's going to be? This is it. It's nowhere else other than here. It's nowhere else other than your own mind and being. It's not in anywhere, in any place, at any other time, but here, this is it. Right? So notice what happens when you hear that. This is it. Right? You might have, I had two different relationships to that. One was, wow, this is it? Really, this is it? Wow, the kingdom of heaven is, 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 is before us? Wow. When you look in that way, it's like, wow. You know, the kingdom of heaven is here. This is it. This is amazing. How could it be any more different than this? Maybe we've already arrived. Maybe there's no turning out but here. It shatters our illusion of a path going from A to Z and we don't like A, we like Z and that's better and this isn't and you know we set up this whole wheel of striving <clears throat> trying to get somewhere other than where we are. Right? This is the paradoxical, one of the deep paradoxes of the practice of spiritual life. This is it right here. And then my other reaction to that teaching was, this is it? Really? Like, come on. <laughs> like, you know, we'd, we'd drive to the satsang, we'd get in these little tuk-tuks and um, <clears throat> go through the bazaar and the, and the, the streets were really jammed. And there was this, the, the, the air, even back then, this was before the bad pollution that's there now, with the, the air was blue, literally blue-gray with, with exhaust, you know, these really polluting diesel tuk-tuks. <clears throat> and at times I'll be saying, this is it? <laughs> this is not what I was expecting. This is not why I flew all the way from England all the way to India. 
with my neurosis and my longing and my fears and all the, you know, my human stuff. This is it? Come on. <laughs> Your it is obviously different than my it. <laughs> Whatever that it is. <clears throat> so we hold these paradoxes. You know, as Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not in some future life. It's right here before us. We have eyes to see. So what does that do to your forward-leaning momentum of, of perennially trying to create the optimal conditions for which then you will relax? then you will retire, then you will move into spiritual retirement, then you will, you know, stop, give up the struggle, as they say. Right? We live in a culture that is, that's forward-leaning towards it's going to be better when. Right? There's a lot of advertising. It will be better when. You know, from the, from the extremely mundane, like buy this, you know, soap powder, and you'll have a bright sunny day with a nice garden and white sheets, you know. It'll all look happy. <laughs> I don't know who's ever been that happy washing sheets, but anyhow. Um, <clears throat> to whatever, you know, some of the more deeper um, messaging of what, what's required for that well-being, right, that keeps us leaning forward and keeps us perennially unsatisfied with what's here. So, relinquishing this idea that some other time it will all turn out. That it's already turning out. That it's already turned out. It is turning out moment by moment. No other place will be better. Might be true in this case. Pretty good place right here. But wherever you are, It's not looking to the physical place, it's looking to the attitude and the relationship to this moment and this place. It's that looking to that ceaseless, restless part of the mind, that deluded part of the mind that's always seeking something more, something better, something different, something novel, something whatever, fill in the blank. So it's this profound, deep, and subtle restlessness that we feel. This existential restlessness, this itch. You know, maybe all the conditions of our life are relatively good. You know, relationship, family, you know, income, housing, whatever. Then the basics, you know, the important things of our life to, you know, that we like established and, and somewhat, you know, in balance. For and yet, this this restlessness. This, 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 you know, this voice of there has to be something more, right? and on one level, the spiritual search invites that to look deeper, to not accept the mundanity of life, and yet also to not overlook what's already here. You know, as Rumi often speaks about, the that which we seek is that which is uh, doing the looking. 
so in my experience, so um, being a so in, in Buddhist personality types, is you, there's three types: there's greed types, hate types, and deluded types, and we fall into one. And we all have all three, but we, you know, we have a party sometimes with all of them. But you know, we have a leaning towards aversive or desirous or more deluded. I'm more of the desirous camp, so that that mind stream leans towards wanting different experiences, better, newer, faster, you know, more exotic, blah, blah, blah. Which gets very tedious <laughs> to be dragged around. <laughs> a new experience, a new place, a new whatever. Um, in the hope of finding that it will all turn out. It will all be better when. And so my practice is noticing that and relaxing, literally relaxing, because that forward momentum restlessness is a tightness and it's a, it's a clenching. And when we relax, we actually go against that energetic pattern. Just relax into the seat where we are, sitting on the bus, sitting in our armchair, sitting on our you know, chair at our office, whatever. And just relaxing, softening the belly. Now just this, just looking out my office window, a pile of tasks to do, lots of emails. It has already turned out, no other place will be better. Because a no other place will be better is an attitude of the mind, it's not a place. It's what we do with our relationship to the moment. It's not the thing itself, but our relationship to it. So, next relinquishment. So I'll read this one from Tilopa. So this is from the Tibetan tradition. Actually, it's not really from the Tibetan tradition. This is from the Indian, North Indian tradition that was in the lineage of... Um, uh, so in the Buddhist, Indian, North Indian lineage that became the lineage for the Tibetan tradition, Tilopa, Naropa, Mapa, Milarepa, and some of the great, great uh, uh, meditation masters of, of, of Tibet. And he says, this is really a meditation instruction, but meditation instructions are life instructions. Let go of what has happened. <clears throat> Class dismissed. <laughs> Let go of what has happened. <laughs> Right, which is why I'm not really wild about the, wild about the term "let go" because it's like it, it makes it sound easy, you know. Oh, I'm really, I'm really regretting this really painful decision about you know something that didn't turn out. Well, and someone said, "Well, just let go," and you want to hit them, <laughs> nonviolently, <clears throat> metaphorically, or not. <laughs> Let go of what's happened. Easier said than done. All these teachings are easier said than done. Let go of what may come. So let go of what has happened. Let go of the relentless trying to fix the past. As Jack talks about, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. How much time do we keep trying to fix the past? Very painful digging, psychic digging that we do around that. I do it, and I watch other people do it. Very painful. 
How do we put that down? The past is done. The past is gone. Let go of what may come. Let go, relinquish the, the insatiable fascination with planning and fantasy and recreate, creating this life in the imagined future that doesn't actually ever happen for the most part. Let go of the conversations you're rehearsing. How, many, how, many, how much time in meditation do you spend rehearsing a conversation to your partner or your boss or your kids or whoever? It never happens that way. <clears throat> I, I, I was up late last night getting ready. I gave a presentation today at a company and so I was up late doing some stuff on PowerPoint and then I made the mistake. It was just before I went to bed and I thought, I'll just check my email. Just, you know, just a couple of emails. Oh yeah, that's from so-and-so. And it was one of those like, get out the knife and dig it in and... You know, and this was, and I just, and it kept me awake for hours. <laughs> and I rehashed that comment when I tell it, I can't just <laughs> give him a piece of my mind. <laughs> it's like, hey, Mark, let it go. Thought, feeling, hurt, angry, sad, angry, hurt. But let me tell if that happens, just. <laughs> yeah, I got up and I slept on the couch. I was like, I can't sleep. I was really, I was really churned up. I was really, I was really agitated. Planning, you know, this scenario that I know will never happen. Well, there'll be a conversation about the email. I was wise enough to not get on email and send another email. <laughs> I've learned something about this. My practice has come through at least a little bit, which is never write an email when you're angry and send it because it's in writing and you can't take it back and you're likely to regret it always <laughs> mostly so I was like I'm not responding to that I'm just going to kvetch in my mind <clears throat> let go of what is happening now it's a deep teaching. Let go of what's happened. Let go of what may come. Let go of what is happening now. What does that mean? To let go of what is happening now. To let go of control. To let go of manipulation. To let go and just allow life to be as it is. To unfold as it can. particularly in the meditation to allow the meditation to unfold the experience, awareness, whatever to unfold don't try to figure anything out good luck with that one don't try to figure anything out the way we get lost in analysis like I was taking these questions yesterday and every time a why question why do we think these thoughts I don't know (laughs) And it, that question is not that helpful. What's helpful is, how do I work with these thoughts? That's a good question. Because that actually has some practical application. The why, who knows why we have these crazy random thoughts about who knows what. You know? Let go of figuring anything out. Of course, you know, we need to figure things out in our life. We need to figure out things for our work and our relationships and etc. But we're letting go of the sort of neurotic, incessant 
humble, dry mind that's always in analysis rather than actually allowing experience to be and ourselves to be. Don't try to make anything happen. Again, this is mostly referring to meditation instruction, but really it's... So in meditation, it's not trying to manufacture experience. Not trying to get to a special state. How much time in meditation do we spend trying to get back to that special, yummy, oozy, spacious, lovely, yummy, blissful state? Come on, be honest. Like half the time in meditation? I don't know, significant amount of time. If I just sit still, if I just breathe, just gently and just shut up. Just, just shut up. <laughs> Don't ring the bell. You're almost there. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Manipulating experience. Trying to get a certain thing that lasts for a few minutes and goes. That's the point of that. That's a setup for suffering. When we actually, and what's ironic about these teachings on relinquishment, when we relinquish, in this case, letting go of what's happened, what may come, what's happening now, trying to figure something out, trying to make anything happen, you know, there's a relaxation, there's a spaciousness, there's an openness, there's a presence that allows you know, a lot of richness and beautiful things to arise. The very thing that we're clamoring for peace, joy, delight, whatever. Much more likely to come when we let go of the very fixation. Meditation is to release the fixating mind. Grabbing mind. And lastly he says, relax right now and rest. If you've done all that hard work of letting go, all that stuff, relax right now and rest. Rest in awareness. Hmm. So right now, just whatever's here, just letting it go. Even your desire for this talk to be over, just let that go. (laughs) and just be here with I'm here so and everything we're seeking is magically right here Effort required. No doing required, no fabrication required. debating about whether letting go of the rest of my talk. Because <laughs> it's much sweeter just to sit in the silence, isn't it?
couple last things. So from the Mahayana tradition, so we've had Tibetan tradition, we've had the Taoist tradition, the psychological tradition, now the Zen tradition, Suzuki Roshi in Zen mind, beginner's mind, in terms of relinquishing our struggle with thoughts, he says, when you are practicing meditation, do not try to stop your thoughts. Let them stop by themselves. If something comes into your mind, let it come in and let it go out. It will not stay very long. When you try to stop thinking, it means you're bothered by it. Don't be bothered by anything. It appears that something comes from outside your mind, but actually it's only the waves of your mind. And if you're not bothered by the waves, gradually they become calmer. Sensations come, thoughts, images arise, but they're just waves from your own mind. Nothing comes from outside your mind. If you leave your mind as it is, it will become calm. This mind is called big mind. Sometimes called original mind. One mind. Empty mind. No mind. So again, it has a similar flavor, right? Letting go of the struggle. Thoughts come, thoughts go. Sensations come, sensations go. Feelings come, feelings go. Stuff comes, stuff goes. If we cease to be in contention with it, in reactivity to it, and trying to get rid of it, and he says the waves gradually settle by themselves. Over time, with when we let go, when we relinquish that contentious reactivity, ease is there, spaciousness is there, calm is there. So I can hear some people's minds saying, yeah, well, what about, you know, the kids running across the road? I've got to go out and grab that kid and get him from being run over. Or some version of that thought. Right? There's many places where requires action, requires intervention, requires reflection, requires doing, requires effort, requires, you know, like you know, getting up and going to work, paying the bills, right? So I'm not dismissing any of that necessary, active, dynamic, engaged relationship with life. I'm not negating that. I'm saying within the context of that, there's a way to live with more ease right in the midst of it, of sitting at the desk, of doing the chores, of buying the groceries, of ferrying the children from activity to activity. So lastly, from the Theravadan tradition, insight tradition, um, this lovely reading that I'm sure many of you have heard before because it's such a delightful reading from Achan Sumedho, who uh, is a wonderful Theravadan monk and elder and teacher of many teacher of many teachers here. And his practice, he said, for many years was this practice of letting go, of just allowing what is to be. 
Jack tells this beautiful story of when he first met Achen Samedo, who was a forest monk in, in, in a forest monastery in Thailand, up in northern Thailand. And at the time, Achen Samedo was living in a kuti, a little small hut. And um, there was a bee's nest in the ceiling of the hut. And um, it seemed like the Achen Samedo had a long time ago given up trying to swat away the bees. So when Jack entered his kuti, Achen Samedo was sitting there in meditation covered in bees. He was probably in his phase of letting go. Like just bees, well, the bees like me, I'll just let the bees like me. What's the ad they put on TV? Not to be practiced at home. You know. <laughs> Not to be practiced with children under seven. You know. Not to be practiced without an EpiPen. You know, that's, don't go finding the nearest beehive. But there's a beautiful principle in that of, of this man who surrendered into, well, I'm living in a kuti. This is the hut I've been given. There's bees. And here we are together. They don't harm me. I don't harm them. So he says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to two words, let go, or relinquish, one word. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that practice and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the texts and the suttas and study the Abhidharma, which is a Buddhist philosophy, and learn Pali and Sanskrit, to early Indian languages, and the Majjhimika and the Pajnaparamita, to Buddhist traditions, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, the three main Buddhist paths, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing for this for about two years. Every time I try to understand or figure things out. I just say, let go, let go, until a desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) (laughs) Which I can attest to is quite true. There's more things suffering, but the particular kind of pain. (laughs) Some of you, they're mostly very boring. (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddhist of the age, Maitreya, which is supposed to be the future Buddha, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, let go of the desire to radiate love through the world and just be an earthworm who knows two words, let go, let go, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, which is what Hinayana means. So we only have these simple poverty-stricken practices, which is very said in tongue-in-cheek. Just let go. Just relinquish. Which means, you know, to preface the practice of letting go, we practice letting go through letting be. Letting go is the reason I don't te- use that phrase so much because it sounds like well, you, it, it sounds like something you do. You know, like you've got a hot coal in your hand, you let it go. Well, of course you do. Right? If you're if you've got grief and sorrow in your heart and you try to let it go, it doesn't go. It's sticky. It's, you know, some things have a much longer duration, a necessary duration. So 
we first allow and let be these things, and over time, say with grief, for example, we're with it, we allow it, we feel it, we breathe with it, we let it soak through our bones and our tissues, and at some point, the letting go happens by itself. The relinquishment happens by itself when it's fully moved through and cooked us and done its work. So a lot of the letting go, the deeper letting go, happens through letting be and and, and a really saturating in whatever the experience is. Which might be anxiety or fear or loneliness or loss or existential angst or who knows what. And there are times like with thoughts, like with these habits, we can at times put them down. We see them. We see that hankering after an experience, longing for something different, for somebody better, for some place that's different or exotic or whatever. And we say, oh, I can just put that down. I can just... That that habit is just the wheel of samsara, the wheel of endless dissatisfaction, the, the wheel of endless unfulfillment. And we're turning towards ourselves to find that fulfillment's actually available here. Right now, right in this moment. As tired as you are, as you look. (laughs) As desirous of sleep that you may be. As weary you might be after a long day at work. Or whatever, whatever's here, you know. Can we also be at peace with what's here? In that tiredness, in that heaviness, in the joy, in the longing. Can we find the sweetness in the center of it? Which comes from a profound radical acceptance of this. So lastly, I'll end with the Buddha. I won't comment on it. It doesn't require commentary. He says, How happy she is, for she sees that wakefulness is life. How happy she is following the path of the awakened. With great perseverance, he's talking about a meditator, she meditates seeking freedom and happiness. Live in joy and peace among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and longing. Know the sweet joy of the way. The sweet joy of the way. As we take each step, knowing the sweet joy that's already here. So thank you very much for your presence and your attention. Very lovely to be here. As Mark said, I'm back here in a few weeks at some point. Oh, Halloween. Bring your masks. (laughs) And uh, go well. Thank you. Take care.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.